0: Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK, and today I am Very pleased indeed to be speaking with Dr. Colin Alexander, who is a Senior Lecturer in Political Communications in the School of Arts and Humanities at Nottingham Trent University here in the UK, where he teaches on both undergraduate and graduate degree programmes and supervises PhD students. He himself holds a PhD in Communication Studies from the University of Leeds, and he maintains a research interest in various related subjects such as propaganda, international relations, diplomacy, colonialism, Aid, Charity and Philanthropy and Moral Philosophy, amongst other things. Dr. Alexander, thank you very much indeed for joining us on The Mind Renewed. You're very welcome. Now, I wanted to speak to you because some time ago I came across a link, and I think it was in The Daily Skeptic, I think so anyway, uh, to a video presentation of yours, which you called Coronavirus and the British Wartime Propaganda Playbook. Now, I found that really very interesting because in that presentation, you identify and comment upon the Many ways in which the British government, particularly in the early days of this um, corona era, made use of wartime language and themes and memories, you know, basically to get the nation to do as it wanted. And um, although, you know, I was very much aware of that at the time, and a lot of people were very much aware of that at the time, I didn't and I haven't seen much by way of analysis of that, critique of that, what the government was doing. So, you know, it's very refreshing to come across what you were saying in that presentation. So, um, obviously, that's what I'd like to talk to you today about. Not just that, maybe other things as well come up. But um, I guess the first thing I need to ask you, um, if we're going to be talking about coronavirus and the British wartime propaganda playbook, is what you mean by those two terms, playbook and propaganda. Can I start with the first one there, playbook? Do You you don't mean presumably some particular document that's hanging around somewhere.
1: No. Um, no. I don't know. You, you, you could perhaps say that professional Communicators, People who, who, who work in, in the communications industries, particularly in the field of propaganda and strategic communications, they often work to what we might call a template of different strategies that can sometimes be copy and pasted depending on, on their analysis of what is required at the time. And you see this in all manner of different communications exercises. I mean, you see this, for example, in journalism, um, take a famine in a far-off land. In many ways, the, the way in which the video journalists or, or, or the camera people and the journalist discuss and frame, visually frame the famine is very similar, and it's re- repeated in different mm. ways in terms of where people are. You can also see this in the sort of more modern practice of nation branding or place branding, where many of the places that seek to brand themselves um, roll out a very similar strategy in terms of what they do. So while, yes, you're right, there's not a playbook as in, you know, a sort of American football, you've got to study the playbook, but there is a way of doing things. Mm. And when it comes to something like the pandemic, quite early on, In the process, before we get to lockdown, there is quite clearly a discussion which says, "Okay, what plays are, at the very least, valid in this situation and how do we then move forward with that?
0: Oh, that's interesting. So there were... You are aware of discussions within Whitehall of how should we go about this? Is is there some sort of documentary evidence of this?
1: No, there's not documentary evidence of it, but it's quite clearly happened. I mean... Mm. um, Perhaps the documentation will emerge as the years Mm. go by, but this happens in every layer of government now. Um, Mm -hmm. This has been a trend that has emerged over the last sort of 30 to 40 years where uh, greater and greater attention is given towards the aesthetics of a political situation, i.e. what can be sold to the public rather than the substance or the moral consciousness of what is right Mm. and um, the role of the communicator or the communications advisor in framing what is appropriate what can be done and what exists beyond the pale has become as i say more and more important to that political decision making process so it's not like it happened as a one-off these are conversations that are going on daily within all the portfolios of governance uh, not just in this country, but in, in, in other mm. administrations around the world.
0: Yeah, I very much like that phrase you came up with, first of all, there, where you talked about it being sort of copy and paste kind of approach to this. So I have in my mind, you know, the, the idea of them all sitting around thinking, you know, well, what works? What can we sell to the public? Ah, elements of this, and elements of that, and let's just copy that and paste that. And, um, is that basically the kind of thing that's going on?
1: Well, when it comes to the pandemic, if we move away from the theory and just talk about the specifics of the pandemic, mm. um, the government regardless of what you think of them, and I'm not here to sort of bash the Conservative Party or bash the Johnson administration, that's not the point of this. The reality is that the government, whoever it was in whatever country, was faced with a question that had not been faced before in terms of a pandemic in the digital age. And when it comes to deciding what do we do, the closest, my understanding at least, is that the closest playbook that they have goes back to World War Two. You know, this is a time of total war where all the different sort of faculties of society are going to have to engage with this. Mm. Um, perhaps some industries are going to have to be converted into dual purpose industries. Um, and the government is at the very least interested in how the professional communicators of World War II attempted, first of all, to discuss the threat, but also to keep morale high, Hmm. um, and also how to induce the public into Hmm. thinking in ways that were acceptable to the period of conflict that they faced. So what you see with the pandemic is move forward, you see a lot of the framing of the virus itself as though it were an enemy force, and also the inducement or the attempt, the encouragement of the inducement of fear within the British public as being very similar in strategy to how, in the late 1930s, the British public were encouraged to think of the Nazi or the Axis powers threat that was faced at the time.
0: Mm. Well, yes, and we 'll be going through some of the ways in which that strategy played out in terms of this wartime propaganda model um, but I have to say i 'm not sure that I agree i you know I find this metaphor of war i don 't like it, and I think that it 's rather misleading, and I think it 's quite inappropriate actually I mean, I understand the points that you 've made that the virus is you know seen as the enemy but it isn't an enemy you know it doesn't have any decision making capabilities it can't plan it can't strategize I mean random mutation is not a strategy Um, it never presented an existential threat and that was pretty clear from very early on war you know world war particularly implies that and you know you said yourself that it kind of justified subordinating everything to this effort well I think it was exaggerated, and that was therefore inappropriate. Because um, well, then, then you can say, well, any, well, any expense is. is acceptable, any business failures, any health costs, any cost of lives, paradoxically, so long as it's not COVID deaths, you know, any rights given up kind of thing, because this is a war. That seems way out of proportion to the threat that was presented to us at any time, except perhaps the very, very beginning.
1: Well, that's, um, so, that's you know, my precise point that I'm making, uh-huh. mm-hmm. is that... Um, you cannot, I mean, I'm, I'm not here to argue the moral point as to whether the, the and, and f- or why yeah, the government okay. did this. You, you, you would have to do sort of extensive interviews with, with the major decision makers to understand why they did this. Mm. But certainly I agree with you that the virus is not the Nazis. It's not Imperial Japan. <laughs> I, 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 I absolutely yeah. agree with you that this is the case. It is not an, exis- an existential threat. The point I am making is that, when it came to deciding what plays to use Mm. from a propaganda perspective, the Mm. closest thing they had in recent history was what was experienced in the 1930s and 1940s. And therefore they rolled forward into the digital age a version of that same experience, which results in the virus being framed as a militant force. As you say, an evil force, a, a, a force that has that mm. is, is sentient in some ways, that, that, that it's not just, as you say, you know, random or, or um, people being infected due to circumstance. Actually, it, it, it's premeditated in some kind, uh, kind of way. Of course, that's nonsense. This is a virus. Mm. And, this is, and this is where you have the differentiation between actuality or reason and the framing of something which is more inclined towards instinct of people and and requesting things of people that are not necessarily rational.
0: Mm. Well, I mean, it also strikes me that um, the shaping of this narrative also helped to craft the narrative for the solution as well. You know, because really very, very early on, we were told that the vaccine or the vaccines are the way out of this. and Of course, there's been a lot of debate about that ever since. Um, but the very fact, you know, you've got an enemy and we've got this existential threat and then, so what, there'll be a solution, you know, like the troops coming in at the end to rescue us or who's going to be first to, you know, to develop the the nuclear bomb, you know, the atom bomb to sort out the war sort of thing. Yeah. That seemed to frame that whole... Approach for you know the technocratic solution to the problem right from the beginning, yeah. and and I feel that uh, it was inappropriate as well because it actually you know if I was li- if I'd lived through the war years, I think personally I would think you know this is such an overreaction. It it sullies you know the memory of those people who did go through something like the war because this I mean, is not really comparable.
1: So from a communications point of view, you're, you're you're very on point here that if this had happened in the 1970s most people, I still think probably the majority of people in British society, would have memory of the war. Mm. And if the government was to turn around and start saying all manner of linkages to the conflict that it did, people would say, this is... B-. Mm.
0: Mm.
1: So the, the strategy that they apply is because in communication terms, we've moved from a position of communicative memory where one generation... Tells the next generation of the story of the conflict to cultural memory. Mm. And, and when things move into cultural memory, i.e., bar a handful of people, most people who were involved in World War II have have now died, what you have within the cultural memory phase is more freedom for. Creative narrative, let's call it that, around it. So
0: cynical manipulation of such things. Yeah, okay. And you see this Mm -hmm.
1: in in, you know, in various sort of forms of popular culture, Mm. where it doesn't really matter as much as to how true it was. So rather than people thinking of the war as being just awful and a real test of spirit and a real test of resolve and and, an extensive hardship. Mm. Both physiologically and emotionally, mm. it becomes this kind of finest hour and this real romanticised oh, um, nice. notion in people's minds. And Such that we
0: bring in Vera Lynn, but well, we'll talk about that in a minute. But <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, we we should bring back Vera Lynn's The White Cliffs of Dover and all these other things that happened around um, uh, You know, even the kind of militarization of the NHS. Mm-hmm. Uh, as as inverted commas, frontline workers, yeah. as though they were about to go over the tops in the trenches. You know, it's um, it's a travesty. Mm-hmm. And most people, you would suggest that if this was the 1960s, 1970s, most people would have been irritated, mm-hmm. annoyed. And as you say, think it sullied the actuality yes. of a horrendous period in time.
0: Mm-hmm that's only what i would think obviously myself not having experienced that i can't say but that's what i expect would have been i mean certainly my grandfather went through the war and i don't think he would have been impressed by it at all you
1: know yeah i mean both of my grandfathers served in the war one of them said nothing about it the the, the other one you couldn't shut him up about it Mm -hmm. um both of whom i think were traumatized by it in different ways and i think that for one of them continually talking about it helped him and for the other one just burying it in the back of his mind helped him. So, mm. But ultimately, this was a really difficult experience for people. And to romanticise this is, you know, on a practical level, a reflection of it moving into the stage of cultural memory.
0: Mm. Okay, well, let's talk about some of the things that they actually did. I mean, a lot of this you know, it's familiar to us, but um, I really enjoyed your presentation going through these various aspects because it it helped to explain what was going on, you know, um, and give it some context. So, I mean, there were a load of slogans and repetition that were used, which I'm sure we're all familiar with and burned into our brains, like stay home, protect the NHS, save lives, hands, face, space, and one beloved of the World Economic Forum, build back better. Yeah. Um, I don't know why it's always in threes. It always seems to be in threes. It seems to work well. And um, so, I mean, the thing about the... This- this that strikes me is that obviously a lot we used during the war years um, they are effective but they seem so crass and so why don't people see through that you know how come they work when they're so crass? Um, you, you make the assumption that people don't see through them
1: people do understand that it's a slogan but ultimately in a period of stress for me I think comfort is found within the slogan. It's something that mm. the, the person can go about in their lives and repeat to themselves, repeat within their conversations. Um, they come in threes because they're systematic. So there's a beginning, a middle and an end to them. <laughs> and so, it, 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 again, it, it resonates well within the human mind. Mm. Um, some of them are what we might call consequentialist as well. So uh, the one that you mentioned before about uh, stay home Protect the NHS, save lives. Hmm. That has a stay home, which is an action. Hmm. Protect the NHS, purpose, hmm. save lives, consequence. So there's a sort of oh, yes. t- t- it takes you through those three those three stages, and then the other ones like hands, face, space, and then all the bees and all that kind of one. Um, yeah. you know, that's all kind of poetics being used if you like in order to it makes things memorable Mm -hmm. in one form or another so i think people do understand that they're being propagated too but as i say when people are under quite a lot of emotional stress whether that's been induced into them through propaganda (laughs) or not um they tend to 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 be rather submissive to it and they tend to enjoy where something is simplified Mm. into certain ways and that's probably why it's most effective, but I mean the extent to which people actually do what they're told is a whole, <laughs> is a whole different question, really. To be honest, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, the, the, yeah. So, I, I like this idea that people are comforted by that as sort of an emotional response. And you you say that actually emotional appeal is a big part of this kind of propaganda drive. But um, that seems obvious. But what's less obvious is this making people think that they're being rational when they listen to the message. Um, but really, the main target of the message is to target emotions, but they come away thinking they somehow thought of it for themselves. Um, um, do you have any particular examples of that sort of thing?
1: I mean, this is one of the kind of highest arts in propaganda, and it's very difficult to achieve. Hmm. Um, if you look at, if you go to somewhere like North Korea, right, or China, or, you know, China under Mao, for example... The, the propaganda is very simple. It's very instructional. It's do this, do that sort of thing. It's very much trying to say, if you do this, then you're a virtuous citizen. Uh-huh. And there's a simplicity. There's a kind of clunkiness to it. But what the kind of higher art of propaganda is, as you're kind of saying, is to make or to try and encourage the individual to think that they're the rational one, they're the sensible one, they're also the virtuous citizen. Yeah. And it's these other people who are not so in some form or another.
0: You know, there's a wonderful example of this from the First World War. You, no doubt you know of it, uh, where you've got this father sitting in an armchair and his little girl is sat on his lap and she says to him, Daddy, what did you do in the Great War? Mm-hmm. And he's looking wistfully straight at you, you know, and that's so powerful and it invites anybody who looks at that to you know, to introspect, to think, oh, how would I like to end up at the end of this? How will I be thought of? And and yet, you know, uh, w- were people really aware that they were being manipulated when they looked at that poster? Um, yeah. Or just did they immediately go to the introspection stage and think, oh, crumbs, crumbs. Let yeah. me think this through at length, you know.
1: They're going to their introspection stage, yeah. but they're also going to their, e- their, their egotistical brain mm. as well, mm. where they're thinking, how would I like to be remembered? You know, wh- yes. what how would I like people to think of me at my funeral and beyond that? Um, there's a Slavoj Zizek would call this a jusong to this. This is like a there's a kind of an almost like an orgasmic pleasure that people get of thinking that ten years after they're gone, people still revere them. So there's a, wow. it's, there's a sort of gross, gross egoism behind this, and this is one of the things that propaganda tries to do. It very subtly tries to encourage you to think egotistically. Mm. But also to seduce yourself, because quite often you think that you're being compassionate, you're you're being a conciliatory, you're being a you know a good citizen, uh, a good member of, member of community. But ultimately, what propaganda is really saying to you is it is flattery. And it's attempting to get you to think in egotistical ways. But as I say, this is a, this is a quite a high art mm. in how this
0: is achieved. Yes, when I looked at that poster, I thought that was clever stuff, actually, the way that was crafted. And in fact, what you've said here reminds me of a, a piece that you wrote on f- propaganda and philanthropy. <laughs> a lot of that seems to connect with that. Maybe we'll come on to that um, a little later, because that's a fascinating subject. Sure. Um, another thing is that um, you talk about the propagandist talking to the audience rather than about the audience and we saw of course an, an awful lot of that particularly with those you know five o'clock um announcements that boris would come there on the on the tv and he'd be standing there in the middle of the two experts either side and he they, they would sort of discuss more data and then he would sum it up and speak directly you know to the individual tv watcher five um, o'clock, that's it yes and speak but it's kind of speaking to this is the Jacques Ellul thing, isn't it? You know, speaking to the individual, but conscious of the individual is embedded in, in the crowd, you know, um, using all the, the myths and the way of thinking of that crowd. <sighs> that was a, a big feature of this uh, every day. And it brought to mind, of course, as many people thought, you know, Churchill, because Boris is a big fan of Churchill, isn't he?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, Churchill was at least partly a soldier, would anybody want Boris in their ranks as a soul? <laughs> I mean, anyway. Come on, chaps. Come well, on, chaps. I let's get them. No. <laughs> I you Cover would be blown, let's just say, quite quickly. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just perhaps on a side point to this, um, mm-hmm. during the Vietnam War, the press briefing at five o'clock used to be called the five o'clock follies um, because... You'd have journalists out in, in the field monitoring the situation of what's going on in the war, and then the American government would tell them, this is what's going on in the war, and all the journalists would be like, no, it's not. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, we don't have that because everybody was stuck in their houses. Um, yeah. So in many ways, what happened with the 5 o'clock briefings was that every not everybody, but lots of people would tune in, and it would be their daily dose of what's going on in the fight in, in the pandemic. Hmm. And so you would have Chris Whitty and Jenny Harries, people like that saying, these are the number of dead, these are the number of infections and all these sorts of things. And then Boris Johnson would, hmm. or, or one of his um, uh, ministers, would say something along the lines of to g- give give a briefing report. But ultimately, whether you're a journalist or a, or a member of the public, you had virtually no way of substantiating what was going on or not because you were um, not quite mandated but you were certainly very much encouraged to stay home and what was seen as virtuous citizenship was to remain in your house.
0: Stay in your bunker or <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the virus bombs are, are dropping on you oh, yeah. Yeah, sorry Um yeah, I mean that was then. Uh, Boris was there in the centre, and it was his job to speak to the TV, but also uh, to um, speak of the certainty of victory, wasn't it? We'll we'll get through this together. We sh- we shall overcome. And I of, I again thought of uh, you know Churchill and the you uh, know uh, we shall not flag, we, we yeah. shall not fail, that sort of thing.
1: <laughs> well, that's and yeah, I mean that's one of the clearest militarizations of of, of the whole scenario. Was you know we will defeat this disease. And I use the word disease with inverted commas here because mm. at the start of the whole scenario, kind of winter 2019-20, this is an illness, a mild illness for most people. I don't know if you've had it. I've certainly had it. And it was a few rough days and then I was okay again.
0: Um, I've not had it, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I'm yet to have it, but of course I'll probably get Omicron, so,
1: yeah. (laughs) Well, then, (laughs) and and I'm sure that for some people it has been more serious than others, and we don't quite understand why for some it is than others. Mm. Perhaps it's Mm. genetic, whatever, that's the kind of byproduct of
0: it. Many factors, yes. But what
1: you see by kind of April May time is Boris Johnson referring to it as a disease. Mm. And it's not a disease. Cancer is a disease. It is an illness which your body's immune system should fight off. Mm. Um, you don't tend to just kind of fight off cancer. So there's a very big distinction between illness and disease. Mm. And again, you know, we, we don't have the documentation here and it might have just been done by uh, communications advisors telling Boris Johnson or scripting Boris Johnson to say this, but quite clearly there is a a, a change in the language and change in the tone from illness to disease yeah. after sort of six weeks or so of lockdown. Hmm. Um, that, for me, is a clear hmm. indication of what is going on.
0: Are you aware of when the term COVID-19 came in? Because that is coronavirus disease, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't know when we started using the word uh, huh. COVID-19. It was pretty quick, mm. um, but it's certainly we were still referring to coronavirus. Um, but I think the word COVID, I think the term COVID-19 was certainly before lockdown started, mm. because I, I, when I was sort of doing my initial study of the propaganda environment in the sort of February, early March of 2020, the word COVID-19 was circulating relatively freely. But then, Mm. and I think it's because, you know, the the actual technical name for it, the kind of SARS, whatever else, is Mm. a bit of a mouthful for people.
0: (laughs) SARS-CoV-2 or SARS-CoV-2, yeah. Or as Dr Bean is now saying SARS-CoV-3 and uh, Um, COVID-21. Because it's different, you know. (laughs) Um, Um,
1: One of the most prolific users of the word COVID was Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, who became a bit of a kind of not a celeb, but she got quite a lot of notoriety because of what was seen at the time as being a, a responsible way to handle the pandemic. You can debate whether it was or not, mm. although perhaps the tables have turned quite a bit given the, the vaccine mandates within New Zealand at the moment. But yeah. she certainly was... Um, there was quite extensive international coverage of Jacinda Ardern's public addresses, and she she wasn't calling it COVID-19, she was just calling it covid and what you see within journalistic circles and also political circles is that people begin to take note of what others are doing and then it kind of bandwagon snowballs from there.
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, I just want to come back to these experts who are flanking uh, Boris, yep. uh, you know, Chris Whitty, Patrick Vallance, Jonathan Van Tam, or whoever it was. Um, you know, they were very much on show to the nation. As you say. We're following the science, so this is not just you know politics. In fact, this is mostly about science, that kind of thing. So was that a feature also of the world wars um, you know the public demonstration of following the science following the experts to your knowledge
1: Well I mean politicians would I mean well, first of all we, we don't have the media communications technologies to have live briefings live televised brief, yeah. briefings as we would have mm. but certainly I think that the what I, what I can say is that there was certainly an emphasis within first of all the Chamberlain and then within the Churchill administration's to be at least on the same page as the military generals of the day. Um, Privately, particularly with Churchill, they vehemently disagreed with him, and to some extent with Chamberlain as well. But certainly when it came to public stance, one thing that Churchill was very, very keen on was to ensure that at a public level there was a, a unified approach to the message. And that's probably as close as you can come to this, because... There's not really that same sort of thing that you can see where you're live broadcasting on a digital platform no.
0: to, to you know millions of people. No, 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 sure, yeah. sure, sure. Or, or indeed the, the health expert. So yes, I mean the parallel would be the military strategist, the military expert. Yes, and perhaps yeah. r- reporting that in the newspaper or I don't know our generals say such and such. And yeah. so there, there was that sort of thing. Sure. Rocking. So I mean, like if you look yeah. at the
1: the sort of major, if you go to like the Far East,
0: you've got like um, Mount
1: Batten and uh, you've got. Auchinleck mm. uh, and people like that, very much entwined within the the conservative party and within the political establishment generally
0: mm. all right, well, I want to ask a question more generally about the sort of moral dimension to this form of propaganda um you are know, a number of things that you identify here that I'm sort of putting together in order to sort <laughs> of hanging these on on you know on my point here um you talk about um social conscience in propaganda, you know it's, we're all in this together kind of thing. Um, the emphasis on service and duty. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're serving the nation. We're serving each other by doing our duty. And wartime fellowship. So conjuring up images of that. And this is where we get back to things like um, you know, Vera Lynn. And um, you know, we're, we're working together, supporting each other, keeping up morale. Um, so all of this seems to have a very clear moral dimension to it. So the question really here to you is, um, you know, how important is this lever of morality when you're crafting war propaganda, you know, whether it's the Second World War or whether it's the the so-called pandemic? Uh,
1: There's a bit of a dialectic when it comes to morality and propaganda. Hmm. I mean, ultimately, what the the propagandist is, well, maybe we just have a quick definition of propaganda in that propaganda is about the manipulation of a mass audience on the grounds of self-interest Okay, that's okay. roughly speaking what we're talking about here. So, yeah. um, who, whoever the propagandist or whoever the, whoever is being represented by the propagandist is ultimately trying to serve their own interests, whatever their their own interests are. So, propaganda itself exists within within a sort of moral vacuum. It's not saying well. I don't like radio, so I'm not going to use radio. I don't like television. It uses whatever technology is available to it in order to proliferate its message. Um, The moral dimension here is actually goes to the the crux of philosophies or moral philosophies question as to what it means to be good, inverted commas, good, which is one of the reasons why I, you mentioned my work on philanthropy. This is one of the key mm-hmm. philanthropic questions that we ask is, what is good? What does it mean to be good? Um, you put this down to sort of two conceptualizations. You've got the kind of Aristotelian uh, concept of virtue. So the idea that what virtue really means is to how to be a good citizen or how to what Aristotle calls, flourish within the polis. Hmm. And and so Aristotle talks about these different virtues that people can have, which will help them to access the polis and also to to flourish and to become uh, well-regarded within the polis. So a lot of what propaganda tries to do is to encourage people to do this in some form or another. And it alters its message based on whatever the polis is up to at the time and in this case in the case of a pandemic the polis or the hegemonic coalition of the polis are saying if you want to be a good a, a good boy a good girl this is what you do right it's it's all these sorts of things like wash your hands wear a face mask get vaccinated you know stay at home whatever it is um go and help your neighbor out etc cetera, etc cetera. however what we have in moral philosophy is this contest between Sort of Aristotelian ver- uh, concepts of virtue and the role of the of, of the individual within the polis, and the more sort of Enlightenment era questions from people like Immanuel Kant on what is moral consciousness. Mm. So the idea of internalizing consciousness and saying, well, the way in which we benefit society is by all being true and pure to our own individual conscience, listening to our conscience and then moving forward and engaging in sort of debate within the public sphere as to what goodness is. So what in this pandemic and what governments do most of the time, but particularly in periods of crisis, is that they almost say the availability of individual moral conscience is now more limited than it was before. What we need right now is the virtuous citizen, the person who is flourishing within this polis that we are describing to you, which may or may not be a propaganda in itself. (laughs) Um, So what you see here is propaganda trying to push people towards virtuous consciousness and trying to discourage people from having individual consciousness because individual consciousness might lead people towards perhaps more rational thoughts of, Mm. you know... If I go out for two walks today, that doesn't make a blind bit of difference. OK, or if I am to drive my car to the Peak District and go for a walk on my own with the dog, that's fine. You know, or perhaps it's people beginning to think about specific aspects of vaccination hmm. or not. I talk to my students about this. Does this 21 year old fit healthy young man or woman require a vaccination against something which has a 99.9% chance of survival against? Well, no. So you you have all these questions around what is virtue and what is the individual's moral consciousness? And propaganda kind of plays these two things off against each other.
0: Yes. So we're very much in this situation discouraged from entering into a conversation with our own conscience on such matters yeah. but rather we're directed towards the flattering of ego aren't we so yeah so, <laughs> so, so a, a lot of this if you obey these things then you can feel to yourself well i'm a good person because i've done what the government's telling me to do which is a very surface kind of response but it is the aristotelian kind of precisely it fulfills so, that it fulfills that doesn't so, it? Yes. so it's
1: essentially like you're not actually analyzing whether the polis itself is virtuous you're, you're only analysing how you flourish within mm. it. Mm. You're almost engaged in a kind of amoral questioning where the polis is the polis is the polis and I'll just do what I can to exist within it. Not that, mm. you know, the polis may well be fundamentally wrong. I mean, you look at something like climate change where we continue to hurtle towards environmental degradation catastrophe and yet the polis keeps telling you to eat meat, fly around the world as you like, you know, actually that's seen as virtuous, that's seen as as prestigious within the polis to do this, when actually what most of the scientific argument says is you need to move more to a plant-based diet, you need to be far more ecocentric in your decision making, and you need to stop doing all these things, but ultimately the polis says no, because the polis is a sort of pro-capital pro-GDP enhancement kind of um, framework.
0: Mm. Well, we may have differing views on those details. However, I take your point. But uh, one thing that occurs to me is uh, I've got here a quote from, well, he was the vaccines minister, Nadim Zahawi. And I've got a quote from him here. And what you say, I think, might actually help me to understand what he said, because he said in Parliament uh, last year, talking about these vaccine passports, he said, it goes against everything I believe in. I thought it was a remarkable statement. It goes against everything I believe in. But then he still said, it's the right thing to do. And I thought that that was an extraordinary thing to say. Yeah. But it seems to fit what you've been saying. It's the right thing to do from this Polis, Aristotelian sort of mentality. But I'm not happy with it in terms of my own conscience. But those are two separate things. You know?
1: <laughs> but but they're not two separate. I mean, I mean ex- no. exactly, as I would say, but also... <laughs> enhance my point but at the same time you see the contradiction there or the dialectic right. i guess between mm-hmm.
0: um between the these two things and um do you think he swallowed his own propaganda though, his government's own but propaganda but, but, or was but, but, he just see, he's just living in, in the political reality and the, but, having to say something absurd
1: the problem well i mean
0: politicians have said all manner of absurd
1: things over the last few years and <laughs> yes that, and indeed they continue to do so but um What you see here is actually quite a a dangerous thing Mm. where we kind of exist in this age where, you know, in a sort of perhaps a neoliberal sense, it's like kind of everybody's got Mm. ethical red lines until somebody offers you a hundred grand and then you kind of, (laughs) I'll I'll, uh, I'll just kind of forget about that or or, or they become a bit hazier. And um, I think ultimately what Zahawi's kind of saying here is like, well, He's ultimately disagrees with it, and you know, I think the the vaccine question is, is open to interpretation. But when it comes to vaccine passports mm. and the exclusion of people from regular social life based mm. on compliance of that kind, I think that's an incredibly dangerous place to go. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So Zahawi is sort of saying he acknowledges that, and as a as a sort of one nation conservative, that's you know pretty conspicuous consistent with his his other um, uh, rhetoric in in his political career but ultimately what you see here is that he is now the vaccines minister he's been given this portfolio he wants to flourish in the polis he wants to to yeah. have a political career he wants to be, he wants one of the big jobs mm-hmm. in in the cabinet office you know he he perhaps wants to go on and do other things with his life and he and he thinks to himself if I do not say this mm. then Well, it then creates an uncertainty as to what the future, as to what remains the future. This this is what we call the Ellsberg paradox. But um, anyway, we can get
0: on to it. So one thing I would be be interested to know, obviously one doesn't know what's inside his head on it, but I wonder whether he would actually, based upon what you have been saying about these two forms of morality, as it were, um, that he would actually feel virtuous in both senses, saying, I'm not happy with this. But it's the right thing to do. And so from this, this point of view of of policy, feel virtuous about that as well. Yeah, I don't know a, I wonder yeah. how far the contradiction can go inside a person's head. But, you
1: know. but but often perhaps the outsider, the you and I looking at that going, Oh my God, that's complete nonsense. Mm. But for him, it offers sanctuary in his own mind.
0: Mm.
1: So contradiction, yes, contradiction can be to an outsider, it can be a frustration, can be a you know, there can be all sorts of question marks. Uh, But also contradiction can be helpful for people as well. So we're not just trying to manage contradictions in our lives. They also have a functionality in that they allow us to rest easy in one sort of realm or another, even though the outsider might sit there and go, but how can you exist with that conflict? But actually, Mm. it it, it helps to resolve the conflict.
0: I, I think I see what you mean. He had to have a foot in both camps. Um, even though, <laughs> you know, it, it was a very embarrassing moment, um, for him. Um, can I just come back to some of these things that you note? I mean, one that I find is fascinating is the involvement of the monarch in wartime propaganda. And of course, also in what we've been experiencing. Um, the queen was, you know, broadcasting to the nation thanking people for following government rules and for staying at home and coming together to help others and all this. And, and in her speech, this is 2020, in April 2020, she even quoted, we will meet again, you know, the Vera Lynn thing. And uh, it's fascinating to me that she would be sort of dragged into this willingly, no doubt, you know, it's part of her civic duty. <laughs> um, and yet this also is reflecting this wartime tradition, you know, the George VI and, the, and and Queen Elizabeth, you know, walking over the rubble after the Blitz and all that. It's fascinating. This There is this dimension to it as well.
1: Yeah, but I mean, I mean, the Queen didn't write that. She has, she has hmm. communications professionals who who, who who write that for her. Oh, yes. um, she, always, she, she always has to agree to say it. But the role of the royal family in British society, at least I mean, perhaps people who are Republicans don't care less, but certainly... Republicanism only really f- jostles around the sort of 50% or 40% mark in this country at different times, perhaps a little bit more at the moment because of the various like, Prince Andrew issues and things like that. But um, And p- perhaps in the 90s as well with the Princess Diana things that happened. But, um, but ultimately, the propaganda take on it, whether you like it or not, is that the health of the royal family is a kind of shortcut to a question around how healthy is the nation in
0: one form. <laughs> right, right. So yeah. if
1: if the Queen is safe, if the Queen is in health, then then we are also healthy. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 and particularly because the Queen has been on the throne for so long, she's seen as this kind of, uh, going back to the sort of cultural communicative memory sort of thing, she has seen as this kind of link to our past. I mean, like, the vast majority of people in society have only ever... Knowing her mm. to be there, um, <laughs> to be the head yeah. of state. I mean, you know, sure. I, my parents are both in their in the mid seventies, so so, so so they were kind of children when uh, mm. she when, when she when she came to the throne. But they certainly don't remember her father really. Mm. Um, mm. So for, for most people, she's this kind of mainstay. Yeah. Um, it'd be interesting to see how once she does pass away, what how how that kind of dynamic. Emerges certainly the, yes. the propagandists of of the royal household will be very clear to try and instil that sense of again that the health of the new monarch uh, represents the health of of the nation and and by the way you see this not just in Britain um, mm. you know if you look if you go to somewhere like North Korea where you see the transfer of power from Kim Il Sung to Kim Jong Il to Kim Jong Un there's that very right. much that sense. Perhaps we might see it as happening in quite an odd way, but certainly you have that sense of the destiny of the nation and the health of the nation is confined within the health and the circumstances of of their supreme great leader.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is, it's quite amusing, though, in a way, this idea that she's, Our our leader, our our monarch, symbolizes the nation. Um, uh, And The reason why I keep chuckling throughout is because I came across a fantastic little bit of a Wikipedia entry here about the the address she gave on the 5th of April 2020. Let me just read this because it it says something about what we've just been saying, Mm -hmm. but also something about the... I don't know, the artificiality of this whole sort of propaganda situation. Absolutely. Here we go. Just let me quote this, because I just love this. Um, On the 5th of April 2020, the song We'll Meet Again was echoed by Queen Elizabeth II in a television address she delivered addressing the COVID-19 pandemic. For the 75th anniversary of VE Day, uh, Victory Europe Day, um, Lynn and Catherine Jenkins duetted virtually, Jenkins singing next to a hologram, at the Royal Albert Hall, which was empty <laughs> due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I just There's something about that um, which just, I don't know, just says something about the artificiality of the whole setup, you know, because obviously the Queen does not embody the nation, um, and this wasn't a war, and somehow that little paragraph there sums it up for me. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, there's quite a famous French philosopher called Guy Debord who talks about the society of the spectacle and how (laughs) essentially everything is reduced into this spectacle where even the deceivers are deceiving themselves in some way. So even the propagandists are actually kind of believe something to be true. But ultimately, what we really have is a series of images of a pseudo world, which Hmm. combine into the mind of the individual to create a worldview, which is actually very much detached from the actuality of the world in terms of that sort of theory of everyday life that somebody like um, Henri Lefebvre talks about.
0: Fascinating stuff. And, you know, I would like to go on talking about uh, the the philanthropy dimension, but unfortunately, I am certainly this end running out of time. Um, And I think to talk about that in two or three minutes, I don't know whether you could have a quick go at it. (laughs) But um, what do you think? I mean,
1: all all I can say is simply that I go back to this idea of what is good in society and, Mm. and, and what propaganda is often trying to do is to split things into being this is good and this is bad. propaganda is ultimately a pretty simple thing that it's trying to do it doesn't want to communicate difficult concepts it doesn't want to tell you things about in great technical detail Um, one of the reasons why Chris Whitty for example was kind of slated was because all these slides had all these graphs going everywhere and Mm. people were like we we don't have a clue what you're talking about sort of thing so he was quite ineffective as a propagandist Um, to move it into philanthropy is simply just to say that Philanthropy is seen as a wholly virtuous concept.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, The very fact that philanthropy is called good cause, is referred to as good cause, asks us to think about everything that is done, mm-hmm. perhaps in the non-profit industry, as being, inverted commas, good. Mm-hmm. The only thing that I really say from, from a very basic standpoint is that some of it is better than others. And it really depends on how you think about the structure and the various agency that, that, that different organisations have in society. You know, wh- what is the role of government? What is the role of the NHS to provide healthcare? What is the role of the police force in terms of enforcing certain things? What is the role of the military in society? You know, all these sort of questions are kind of forebearers. And then you can move forward and say, well, just how good is what this charity is doing. Perhaps, maybe it's well-meaning, maybe it's not, but perhaps it ends up perpetuating the very issue that it's claiming to wish to resolve in some form or another. Or perhaps, actually, it has malicious intent in that it's set up as uh, the founders well know that something is not a resolution to any social problem. At all. Mm. So essentially, my work on charity really tries to look into this concept of what is good? What, first of all, do people understand as being good? And from a propaganda point of view, how are we told to behave as good? And, And often what charity tries to do is this kind of easy way of doing things. When actually to be wholly virtuous requires a lot of effort, a lot of intent and a lot of checking of oneself and also what charity says is, give us a fiver a month and go away and don't think about it again.
0: Or I'll give you a fiver if you play some music to me and I'm entertained. Yeah, well, that, um,
1: and, that, and, that, and that's the, <laughs> transact, the, the sort of transactory nature of charity. And again, it go, goes hmm. back to egoism where people are sort of hmm. saying, well... I will, so take like children in need for example mm-hmm. I will donate to you if I am entertained enough <laughs> yeah. when charity should be based on compassion not on, on, on the flattery that occurs from, th- through your
0: ego Fascinating stuff. In fact, we're in, uh, we're almost into another conversation. I hope it would be possible at some point to have another conversation with you about this kind of subject and also about the philanthropical um, aspect to it as well. I mean, you wrote a fantastically um, interesting essay on Andrew Carnegie, which I was hoping we were going to be able to get into. Um, got this great steel tycoon who uh, gave a lot of money away, or a large proportion of his wealth, but you know, one questions quite what all the purposes were behind that. And mm-hmm. Was some of that? propagandistic. Um, you argue the case that yeah, yeah, there was a propagandistic element to that. So that would be fantastic well, to have yeah. a conversation along those lines. Thank you. But we're running out of time here. Um, I'm so sorry I've got to leave. Um, but uh, thank you ever so much indeed for coming on to talk about this. It's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, I knew it would be because I was I was fascinated when I first saw your video on this. I will link to your page at uh, Nottingham Trent University so people can find out more about your you know papers and books and your research interests and other things that you've written actually about the coronavirus propaganda Um, You've got uh, three other works that you've written there about it. Um, Is there anything else that you would you would want you know of your own work or perhaps others on this kind of subject that you want to draw um, attention to before we close?
1: Uh, On on the topic of charity, I'm just engaged in a pretty Mm. major research project at the moment, which where I am looking to publish a book next year on the subject of this sort of critical understanding of what we think charity is. So if your listeners want to look out for that probably in the next 12 months or so, then uh, send send me an email and I'll let you know what's happening with it
0: excellent oh well that will be wonderful to talk about that fantastic thank you ever so much indeed for coming on i'm sorry to sort of uh, close things off so quickly but i do have to rush thank you ever so much no problem show notes for this program can be found at the minds renewed themindsrenewed.com podcast music by the brilliant anthony rajakov attribution non-commercial share alike 4.0 international you have been listening to me julian charles and my guest dr colin alexander and i very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future